Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Early results in Nigeria's tight presidential race meet resistance from political parties and observers. At the end of our observation mission, we will make recommendations on how to improve the process because elections in our regions are evolving. Peter Klote on a summit in Nigeria will bring us the latest from Abuja. South Sudan's president and vice president reiterate their commitment to restoring peace. Demands for South Sudan's government to provide information on the fate and whereabouts of journalist Maurice Mabio. First Lady Jill Biden draws attention to Africa's unprecedented hunger crisis. The United States is providing 70% of the money that's coming into this region. But we cannot be the only ones. We need to have other countries join us in this global effort. And as Uganda looks to drill its first oil wells, critics say the government and its partners are damaging the environment and wildlife migration. Those stories plus our Black History Month facts of the day are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission, also known as INEC, has begun announcing official results from Saturday's presidential election. But just minutes into the national tally on Monday, party agents challenged the outcomes. Last weekend's polls were marred by delays and technical problems that saw thousands of voters hit the streets on Sunday in protest. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The Abuja National Collation Center opened at midday Monday for a second day of vote counting. Officials from Nigeria's electoral body, INEC, along with election observers, party members and journalists were present. INEC announced early results from four out of Nigeria's 36 states, putting the All Progressives Congress presidential candidate Bola Ahmed Tinubu in the lead. Ekiti, Oshun, Ondo and Kwara states are considered strong bases for the incumbent APC party. But the announcement of results was met with resistance from political parties. They said INEX field officers failed to upload the latest results from polling units in order to manipulate the figures. INEX Mahmoud Yakubu addressed the issue. The law does not require that collation should be done on the basis of results transmitted. It's on the basis of results carried forward manually and physically to the various collation centers. But while there are discrepancies, then it is the the transmitted result that it should be used to resolve the discrepancies. All three top contenders have questioned the vote counting, including Nigeria's Labour Party, During a media briefing Sunday, the party said it will only accept results that corroborate with their agents' tallies at polling units. The election Saturday were marred by widespread delays, technical difficulties with the voting machines, and threats of violence and insecurity. The delays forced INEC to extend voting into a second day on Sunday, but some eligible voters did not get a chance to cast their ballots. On Sunday, hundreds, including Abuja resident Kingsley Francis, waited several hours for electoral officials to arrive. You have to go and queue. I was number one. I was number one person accredited. After they accredited me, paper, no paper was given to me. Other people were are getting accreditation. No paper will be given to them. Local and international observers are also raising concerns. Former Sierra Leone president 
Ernest Bai Koroma, head of the election observation team for regional bloc ECOWAS, spoke to journalists. At the end of our observation mission, we will make recommendations on how to improve the process because elections in our regions are evolving and we must continue improving and try to harmonize them. The race to replace outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari is expected to be highly competitive. Candidates for the biggest parties, PDP and APC, are facing a fierce challenge from the Labour Party's Pida Obi. Obi is mostly backed by young people who accounted for over 80% of the 10 million first-time voters. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Results from Saturday's Nigeria presidential, parliamentary and gubernatorial elections continue to trickle in. The Independent National Electoral Commission, also known as INEC, says three leading presidential candidates, Peter Obi of the Labour Party, Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, the PDP, and Bola Tinubu of the All Progressive Congress Party, the APC, are all winning in some states. However, some international observers have openly criticized the conduct of the polls. The International Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute have both said the vote fell short of reasonable expectations. As viewers Peter Clotty, who is on assignment in Nigeria, tells us, former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo is the latest to say that the results do not correspond with the wishes of the Nigerian people. Well, the latest is the expectations is very high, but the breaking news at the moment is the letter that former President Olusegun Obasanjo wrote calling the attention of the INEC chairman, Professor Mahmoud Yakubu, and President Mohamed Buhari, basically calling on INEC to annul the elections and possibly to rerun it, citing instances of trouble, calling on Professor Mahmoud to save Nigeria from unanticipated chaos because of allegations of fraud, violence, clashes, voter manipulations, voter irregularities. Some even go to the extent of calling it rigging because they said that the due process, processes which INEC implemented to create transparency and credibility appear to have been violated, including the transmission of election results from the polling centers through an electronic transmission called DIVAS. Those were not done. Rather, they resorted to manual input, which people said was subject to manipulation and rigging. So that is the biggest news here. Peter, so therefore, based on what you're telling us about the former president, Obasanjo, he probably is not the only person... I was reading earlier about uh, some international observers, including the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute, also criticizing the conduct of the election. What you read was accurate. The European Union Poll Observer Mission also expressed concern about some of the activities leading up to the election, basically questioning the transparency and credibility of the elections because of the belief that INEC briefed them that this was how the system was going to go, lay down the procedures about the transparency with which to transmit the election results. All the promises they made, civil society groups, local observers say INEC flouted all the rules, rather resorting to manual computation and imputation and uploading of the results from the poll 
polling station. Basically, they are saying what you promised us is not what we are getting. And what we are getting is subject to manipulation and voter result tampering. So, Peter, under Nigerian law, how long does the Elections Commission have to announce the final results? Well, according to the electoral law, as enshrined in the Constitution, the Independent National Electoral Commission, or INEC, has two weeks, 14 days, to announce the election result. So INEC has a lot of time to announce the result. Peter, thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much, James. That was VOS Peter Clotty speaking with us from the Nigerian capital, Abuja. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden is drawing attention to the severe drought that has gripped East Africa and created an unprecedented food insecurity crisis in Kenya, while the crises in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan are dire as well. Biden used part of her trip to Kenya to highlight a crisis that is on the verge of disaster and to plead for help from other wealthy nations. Views Anita Powell is traveling with the First Lady and brings us this report from Lucy Tete, Kenya. The United States has provided the lion's share of humanitarian aid to East Africa after rains failed here for a third straight year, causing unprecedented hunger that stretches from Somalia to this Maasai village just three hours from Kenya's capital, Nairobi. The UN chief for Kenya told BOA that six million people are on the brink of extreme hunger this year, and that the situation is exacerbated by the food supply crisis caused by the conflict in Ukraine. But the world's richest nation can't walk this road alone, says First Lady Jill Biden, who this week made a historic visit to the worst drought this area has seen in seven generations. The United States is providing 70 percent of the budget, you know, the money that's coming into this region. But we cannot be the only ones. We need to have other countries join us in this global effort to to uh, help these people of the region. The World Food Program's Nairobi-based head of advocacy and communication, Brenda Kariuki, told VOA that the need across the East African region, which includes Somalia and Ethiopia, is vast. We require $6.5 billion in 2023 alone to continue feeding the people that need it. WFP is aiming to reach 45 million people. That is a significant task and we can't do it on our own. So we look to our donors, our partners, our governments to really step up and make sure no one goes to bed without food. But as Biden learned as she made a recent visit to the predominantly Maasai village of Lositeti, the needs are greater. Women here told her that the drought has killed their livestock, ruined their livelihoods, and kept their children out of school. U.S. Ambassador to Kenya, Meg Whitman, says the country needs more than a short-term fix. I would just underscore what Dr. Biden said, is that everyone needs to help as best we can here, um, because this is going to continue for the foreseeable future. And thank you for shining a light on this problem, because without you, you know, the world wouldn't see it. You are the voice. So you're an extension of their voices. Biden in all spent 90 minutes on the ground. Karayuki says that high-profile visit is important. The presence of the First Lady of the U.S. in the region, especially at a time when we have a food insecurity crisis, is a significant moment, and I think she brings attention to a challenge that the region will have to address, both in the short term, which is with food assistance and ensuring that people are not dying and going to bed hungry every night, but also to bring their attention to the world. As Biden acknowledged, funding is stretched thin, with the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, the war in Ukraine, and other crises that pull at heartstrings 
and wallets. But, she added, looking at mothers and grandmothers who had walked from villages within a 40-kilometer radius to meet her and tell their stories, these hungry bellies can't wait. Anita Powell, VOA News, Los Iteti, Kenya. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty, Washington. Today is Tuesday, February 28th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, our Black History Month Facts of the Day. At separate events over the weekend, both South Sudan President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riyak Mashar said the time for war is over and urged all South Sudanese to forgive one another and work for peace. Mayang David Mayar reports for VOA from Juba. Speaking on Saturday in Juba, at an event organized by the Shulu community to thank him for saving the life of their king during deadly fighting last year in Upper Nile State, President Kiir acknowledged Many South Sudanese are still bitter over violence carried out in the past, but urged all citizens to collectively and individually work for peace. I know this is easier to say, but it is difficult to be done because those who have experienced losses through violence can be reluctant peacemakers. This is because at times, the spirit of revenge overtakes the desire of, for peace and in such a situation to be a peacemaker requires immense courage. Addressing thousands of internally displaced persons at an IDP camp in Juba on Sunday, First Vice President Riyak Machar also said the time for war is over and urged the IDPs to put aside their differences and take advantage of the prevailing peace to forgive one another. You should not be afraid of peace. We need to start reconciliation in it. Peace is a step toward reconciliation. Again, reconciliation cannot be done by people who did not fight. It is done by the people who fought and agree for a way forward. Reconciliation is difficult. I can see you are still bitter in your hearts, but for a country to move forward, we have to leave these things behind. In December 2013 and again in July 2016, fighting broke out between soldiers loyal to Kir and his deputy Machar in Juba. Hundreds of people were killed. The violence forced thousands to flee their homes and see safety at UN-run protection of civilian sites in Juba and other parts of the country. In August 2018, President Kir, Machar and other political leaders signed a revitalized peace deal which ended the civil war and reinstated Machar as first vice president in a reconstituted transitional government of national unity. Machar told IDPs that although many bad things happened during the five-year-long war, they should let go of the past and work for peace. Peace has come. We should reconcile with each other and unite together so that we can start a new life. Ten years in POC, life is not good. And if we see you staying there, we all don't feel good. That's why we want to see you have opportunities like others. If you are a business person, go and start a business. If you have been engaged in farming, go and farm. We don't want to see 
this difficult life in POC to continue. Many IDPs have said they cannot go back because their homes have been occupied by others. Some widows whose husbands were killed during the fighting say they have no savings or property to restart their lives. For VOA News, I'm Anyang David Mayor in Juba. Amnesty International has joined the call for South Sudan to provide information on the fate and whereabouts of journalist Maurice Mambio Awijok Bak. According to Amnesty, Maurice, a critic of the government, was abducted on February 4 this year from Kenya, where he resides, and forcefully returned to Juba. Last Friday, the Pan-African Lawyers Union petitioned the East African Court of Justice in Arusha, Tanzania, for South Sudan to provide clarification about Manbio's whereabouts. Donald Deya is the chief executive officer of the Pan-African Lawyers Union. He tells me the government should either charge Manbio with an internationally recognizable offense or release him immediately. There's this complicity between Kenyan security actors and um, South Sudanese security actors where they unlawfully just abduct people from Kenya, either from the camps, Kakuma and so on, or from the city, and they unlawfully rend them into Juba and into certain torture and possible death. So it's a trend. There's a formal way of um, summoning people who are accused of having committed a criminal offense in one country and happened to be in another country. And it's called extradition. So they don't do this. They just abduct people and then people appear in Juba. So we're very upset about it. It's clearly a failure of the rule of law. They're violating both countries' constitutions, both countries' laws and international law. So it's about accountability. But in the short term, it's also about saving the life of this guy. Because if there's no international attention, international outcry, they just kill him. What do you think uh, the East African Court of Justice, I mean, what can that court do? The court can give orders. First, it can carry out an examination, and it will force these two governments to actually have to come and defend themselves in court, so they can't just ignore it. And then the court can issue orders to the production of this guy, and the court can eventually give damages. You mentioned from the top a complicity between the Kenyan security forces and South Sudan. How do you know that? This uh, man, Morris, is a polygamist. He's got several wives. And one of his wives was in the house. She was in the house when these guys came for her husband. So they had been out and about. They had made overtures because one of the people he was criticizing very prominently is the head of internal security, General Akol Kor. So at some point, Akol tried to send out overtures. So they had made overtures to him the day before he disappeared using uh, a mutual relative. So he was at home with his wife. And as he walks out of his house, within two minutes, within the compound, a whole bunch of anti-terrorism police unit officers then grab it. So they take him back home, confiscate his laptop, his phone, his wife's laptop, some documents, and so on, and she was there. And then they went off with him. So we clearly can identify three people. The chief inspector was the head of the ATP unit, the deputy head of the police post who participated in the raid, and the immigration officer, the brother of General Akol, who accompanied them during the raid. So in addition to your demand from the South Sudan government in terms of the whereabouts of Maurice Mambio. Have you been able to, or has anyone been able to have access to him? Nobody has had access to him because what a call does when they do this kind of thing, they deny that they have you. So what happens is with local corruption at low level with the guards who got the police, families can send messages to incarcerated people. So we've spoken to, and the family has spoken to a number of people who have confirmed that he's at the Blue House. And that is why we'll be seeking an urgent hearing in the course of this week, ex parte, 
So we get at least limited orders directed to these two governments to say where this person is, and at the very least to produce them before a medical facility of the family's choice for a medical checkup. Thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with me. Okay, thank you, James. Donna Deya is the Chief Executive Officer of the Pan-African Lawyers Union. You're speaking with us from Arusha, Tanzania. As Uganda looks to drill its first oil wells, critics say the government and its partners, French giant Toto and China Sinok, are damaging the environment and wildlife migration. The oil companies invited reporters to see the project and respond to the criticism. Alima Atumani reports from Makisa Falls National Park in Uganda. The oil companies. France's Total Energies, the China National Offshore Oil Corporation, and Uganda's National Oil Company are assembling machinery for exploration. The sites include the shores of Lake Albert, where the Chinese corporation will drill three oil wells, and Maxion Falls National Park, where the French outfit will drill 16 wells. Access roads have been opened up in and around the park, which activists say will impact wildlife and push animals into neighboring communities. In a 2018 environmental impact and assessment report, the oil companies identified 32 potential risks to humans and wildlife. Dickens Kamgisha is executive director of the Africa Institute for Energy Governance. He says approval of oil drilling by Uganda's National Environmental Management Authority, or NEMA, was premature. And they were supposed to come up with clear mitigation plans. And unfortunately, NEMA went ahead to approve that assessment without the mitigations in place. Up to now, we are not sure if you are talking about doing these roads, conducting those, expor- those activities in Machon Falls. In a written response to VOA, NEMA said that only 0.05% of the 3,000 square kilometer Machon Falls National Park will be used for oil and gas drilling activities. The authorities say that while oil and gas activities may have an impact on the park, adequate mitigation measures to protect biodiversity have been put in place. Total Energies holds the largest share of the joint venture partnership at 56.76% and is currently constructing and assembling an oil rig inside the Maxion Falls Park that is expected to be completed in May. Alex Malay, Total's superintendent for drilling pads, says the national park and its habitats will not be impacted. We are actually in their territory. So there are several measures that we take. We don't drive fast. We have changed the color of our vehicles to match the environment. They are unintimidating. We have uh, monitors. All the vehicles have vehicle speed monitoring. The drilling projects are added largely to the proposed East African crude oil pipeline that will transport Uganda's crude to ports in Tanzania. Halima Thmani for VA News, Maxion Falls National Park, Uganda. It is time now for our Black History Month and African History Facts for today, February 28. On this day in 1932, Richard Spikes, a black man, invented the automatic gear shift. Also on this day in 1859, the Arkansas legislature required free blacks to choose between leaving the state or be sent back into slavery. On this day in 1990, Nigerian-born Philip Emyongwale was awarded the Gordon Bell Prize for solving one of the 20 most difficult problems 
in the computer field. Also on this day in 1984, the lead singer Michael Jackson won eight Grammy Awards. His album Thriller broke all sales records and remained one of the top money-making albums of all time. And today in Black History, we want to tell you about an African-American holiday celebration called Kwanzaa. It is held December 26th through January 1st. The seven-day celebration encourages people to think about their African roots as well as their lives in present-day America. Kwanzaa is a Swahili word which means the first fruits. It is based on African festivals. It was started in 1966 by Molanda Ron Karanga, a professor, writer, and leader in the black struggle. And that's it for this Tuesday, February 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your morning with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Bott in 